Hey, Being at Work listeners, now is the time. Time to take your leadership journey to the next level with HRD's Leadership Growth Forum. If you're listening to this show, it's clear that you're committed to growing as a leader. So imagine a monthly experience where you not only get to learn, but also explore and connect with other leaders like you. Each month, we dive deep into a different leadership focus, building coaching skills, holding team members accountable, demonstrating empathy, creating a psychologically safe environment, and others. This isn't your average leadership event. It's a tailored experience for leaders who are ready to make a real impact. Join us for this incredible opportunity and secure your spot. Visit hrdleadership.com forward slash B-A-W because your growth as a leader is a journey worth investing in. Oh, being at work listeners, goodness gracious, this is a really good episode. So I'm your host, Andrea Butcher, and you got to know how fired up I am about this conversation today because it's so important and it is all about us moving forward and thinking about work differently, thinking about how we show up with each other differently. This is a show with real stories from executive HR and talent leaders, from all of those we pull the key leadership lessons. And my hope today is that everyone who listens to this conversation will recognize the importance of reclaiming the ability to connect with others through empathy and compassion. I think that is who we are at our core. So let's get to today's guest because he is the reason that I'm so fired up about this. He says that he spent the first 15 years of his career suppressing his natural empathy and compassion to lead by the book and has spent the last 15 years reclaiming the empathy and compassion in his relationships at work. And his message carries so much weight because he is the chief HR officer for SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management. Jim Link describes his role as 50% CHRO and 50% telling the world about being a CHRO. But what you really need to know about Jim is how compassion has become core to his leadership because of a personal challenge he led through that he'll tell us about today. Earlier in his career, he was actually dissuaded from showing empathy, and yet today he recognizes the power in leading with care and concern. Listen in as we talk about letting go of the fear of people feeling sorry for you. We'll talk through Jim's four keys for creating the right kind of culture. And finally, at the end of our conversation, Jim will share his vision for the future of the HR and talent function. It's a good one, so get ready and check it out. I grew up a very humbly in Western Kentucky on a working family farm. And in that environment, I really learned about hard work and perseverance and being resilient in order to accomplish the things that you needed to do in a farming environment, right? Which is, there are so many things that are outside of your control in a farming culture that all those things used to worry me a lot <laughs> when I was a young kid. You know, would we get enough rain or would it be too hot or too dry or, you know, any of those kinds of things. But 
the great thing about growing up in that culture was I learned the value of hard work and the value of integrity very, very early. That was instilled in me by my parents, my grandparents, and all the people in that farming community in which I grew up. But those people also gave me wings to go and do other things. And I'm always grateful for those wings that they were giving me. My mom used to say to me that when I would leave the house early in the morning, she would see me dash across the field on a horse or a motorcycle or a bicycle or whatever that she just hoped that I returned in one piece. But that also opened the doors for me, right? That ability to explore and go find things and do things and learn how to stay out of trouble and learn how to be innovative and creative in the way that I was thinking about the rest of the world and what was out there. I eventually found myself in college on a speech and debate scholarship, which opened all kinds of doors for me and made me confident and comfortable in my own shoes, helped me to understand that I had unique experiences that others might value and find strength from. And so I began to build those things. It paid my way through most of my college, which I needed because I didn't have a lot of money. And so I needed those dollars. The smartest thing Andrea ever did though, was I secured what was then called a cooperative education assignment. Now I think most of the time they're referred to as internships with the General Electric Company. And that opened my eyes to an entire new world of corporate America, starting on the ground floor in a manufacturing plant. But I learned the importance there of all things related to business and productivity and engaging employees to make things happen. And in my own way, showing concern and compassion for what those folks who were producing those goods, products and services were experiencing and how if there was somebody there who understood what they were experiencing, that actually made them better. Yeah. And I know in your five years at GE, you were in a variety of roles. How important was that in setting you up? At that point in time, GE was led by Jack Welch, who you know, was arguably one of the most well-known business people, at least in the last half of the century, right? So a very well-known leader, a very well-known person, and he had a very distinct style. And that style was very business forward. But what he did, and I thought this was brilliant, I've never forgotten this, was he surrounded himself with people who filled his gaps. So if he wasn't good at something, he hired somebody who was to round out that team to make it better. And that really opened my eyes to how you grow and develop people, how you hire for skill and capability, and how you put people forward to help address a bigger picture about the business and what that business needs in order to function at its highest level. Yeah. So it sounds like that was your key takeaway from that environment. It was. And you alluded to this a little bit earlier. The idea was to suppress a lot of that natural empathetic style that you had. It was a by the book management philosophy, right? There was an idea that if you treated everyone the same, then all would be equitable and fair. And I think we now know that that very impersonal approach is most likely not the best solution set. A much more personalized one is, and that now has created a feeling of equity and a feeling of fairness that, that's new and unique and I think is better for the future of business. At that time, earlier in your career, intuitively did you get that something is off here as you were being taught to do it by the book? I found myself needing to suppress my natural empathetic self. There were times whenever I felt great concern and great compassion and great empathy for a particular situation and I had to bottle all that up and store it away as I dealt with that particular situation. Looking back now at some of those things, there are a few instances that pop into my mind where I would have made a different decision today than I did 
all those years ago in those same circumstances. And the key for that is to not make those same mistakes again, right? So you learn from that and you move onward. I always say to people, Andrew, I spent the first half of my career trying to suppress my natural empathetic leadership style, and I've spent the last 15 years trying to reclaim it. So hopefully we're on a better track now, not just me, but in our society and in our cultures, as we think about leading forward with empathy as a leader, I think that is absolutely the place where we need to go. The CHRO of SHRM is saying we are on a path of reclaiming our natural empathic and compassionate tendencies. That makes me emotional. I want to celebrate that. And I want to dive in, and that's why you're here today, because there was a pivotal moment in your career that really led you to recognize the power of compassion. But before you get there, keep going, because I think your story and even your experiences at Porsche and Randstad really lead you to that. So you left GE and went to Pillsbury. Is that right? I did. I became the head of human resources in Pillsbury's largest unionized manufacturing environment. I did that job for a couple of years. I then went into Pillsbury's largest non-unionized environment before I was promoted up to Minneapolis, where I was the number two human resources person in one of our business units, and then became the director of human resources in Pillsbury's research and development community, which was a fascinating job within itself. It was really my first global exposure because we had people working in research and development all over the world. And we were hiring food toxicologists and food chemists and chemical engineers and food scientists and the most amazing people with these very unique, very niche backgrounds. And they were so good at what they did. I remember hiring people who, if the rain gauge changed a tenth of a percent on a wheat field in Kansas, they could tell you how Pillsbury's cake mix formulas needed to change. But I enjoyed my interactions with them. And they found, I think, some type of relatability with someone who grew up on a farm like I did and knew what wheat growing in a field looked like and those kinds of things. So there was always this interactivity and this reconnection to my roots. And I loved that connection, but both at Pillsbury and then eventually at Porsche, where I was the head of human resources in North America for more than eight years. And then, of course, we all know what happened in the financial crisis. There was a day at Porsche in 2009 when I laid off 10% of the North American workforce in one day. I mean, it was just not a good time to be any of us, right, during the financial crisis, but particularly in human resources, when you had to pull those triggers. What did you learn through that experience? Because that is tough. And you hadn't done that to that point. Certainly not on a mass scale like that. What I learned is that the way you talk about needing to lead your business for it in times of crisis matters to those people who are left behind. We focused so much on ensuring that we were doing a good job with those people who had to leave the organization. And we did a good job with those folks. But I underestimated the impact that those departures would have on those people who remained with the company. And I needed to go back and recircle, right, and re-engage those people who were left behind. I mean, that's the only way I know to describe them. And it's not just in that. There have been other situations involving layoffs or mass changes in an organization where you have to go back and focus on those folks that you're counting on to deliver in the future. And I think most of us human resources professionals tend to focus on those that are leaving instead of those that are staying. That's such a great point, that survivor syndrome. And dealing with all the guilt and the sadness and the loss associated with that. Absolutely. After the financial crisis, I ended up as the head of human resources in North America for Ronstadt, 
which at that time was a mid-sized player in the human capital space in the United States, mostly focused on staffing and consulting and RPO type environments. We did several key acquisitions there. We more than doubled the business in revenue. Ronstadt eventually became the largest human capital company in the world, surpassing Adeco. I didn't think I would see that in my career. I knew we were on a very good trajectory. And as the head of human resources in North America, and eventually with global responsibilities for human resources as well, I very quickly learned that the name of the game was tied to enabling others to be successful. And we did everything we could, particularly around the areas of learning and development, employee engagement, what we call career experiences. So many exciting things that we did to just help every employee at Ronstadt live up to their full potential. And that was just part of a cycle, right? When you engage and you believe in people like that, it creates opportunity, it creates performance, it creates all kinds of excitement and energy. And just, it's just a full circle of the employee life cycle. And we were making inroads at every moment of that employee cycle. Well, and I know you've talked about at that time too, you were also doing a lot of progressive things related to flexibility and agility. And so no doubt those initiatives enabled others to perform at higher levels. You're right, Andrea. At Ronside, we were talking about the need for what we call the agility in the workplace three to four to five years before we all were forced to be agile when the pandemic came along. So for Ronstadt, anyway, the, the idea that we would need to operate in an agile way was already on the radar screen. We just actually had to make it happen on that Friday or Monday, right? That most of us felt that same thing. But we were uniquely positioned. We never missed a beat. The business dropped, absolutely. But we already started to see recovery the following month. So in April of, of 2020, we were already starting to see a rebound. And by the summer, particularly summer, even up until September, we were back into growth at Ronstadt in 2020. And most businesses couldn't even find their way to the door at that point in time. Yeah. And you really attribute that to the flexibility, the agility that you had in place. That's right. That we were not only had in place, but that we were talking about, right? We're talking about it with our clients and our customers. And we were doing white papers on it, doing presentations on it around the country. And so in a lot of ways, we were enabling this idea of flexibility and agility before it was even needed. And I still tell people to this day, Andrea, that we move the idea of flexibility and agility forward 20 years in the space of two years as a result of the pandemic. So despite all the horrors that came from the pandemic, if nothing else came out of it, we learned that there is ability in the way where, when, how and why work gets done. And that I don't think we'll ever go back from that. No, and so many good insights have emerged and the expectations of our workforce has changed as a result of life changing significantly. And there's such a connection between, you're talking flexibility and agility, but we started with empathy and compassion and there's such a connectedness. How do you see those connections? They're vitally important in an organization and I like to think about them as cultures that exist in a company or an organization and what human resource leaders and business leaders specifically need to think about is the cultures that they wish to create. And I like to think about this in possibly five areas, depending upon how you think about it. If you focus on creating cultures of belonging, learning, cultures of innovation, and cultures of care, if you get those right in some way, you are building a business that's going to survive into the future. Your employees, the current ones and the ones that you wish to attract in the future are going to want to be a part of those things. 
And what I found is when you think about belonging, innovation, and learning in particular, those three create powerful influences in the workplace. And they're related to each other. You can't have a culture of belonging without a culture of learning. You can't have a culture of learning without a culture of innovation. And then surrounding all that is some degree of a culture of care. In fact, I believe those three actually create a culture of care. But this cultural concept of knowing exactly what it is that you stand for, having those guiding principles in place, and then letting yourself be influenced by the things that you learn and see from others and in how you lead and where you want your business to go, that's absolutely the right way we need to be thinking about running businesses in the future. I also believe that leaders need to let their stories shine through. And I think this became particularly clear during the pandemic. We learned that people who were vulnerable, that leaders who told their stories, that leaders who let others see that they had gaps and deficiencies that they had had to work their entire life through to fulfill was the name of the game. And I had a moment like that in my own life where I had to reach deep down in my soul to grab myself by the bootstraps and move myself forward. I've been fortunate to be married way outside my league for many, many years now. And my wife and I were much younger. And one of our children, actually when he was quite young, became ill. We didn't quite know what was going on there. We were seeing these interesting behaviors, gag reflexes at strange times and the strange look in his eyes. As it turned out, on his very first day of kindergarten, he was sent home from school because one of these things, he appeared to be sick. What we later learned in a bad way was that he had a massive seizure. The massive seizure occurred while I was driving him home. I looked in the back seat of the vehicle and he had slumped over. And as a parent, you don't know how you're going to respond to something like that until it actually happens. So I got him home. I was about a mile at that time, a little over a mile from home, got him home, carried him into the house and put him on my bed in our master bedroom. And he began to have a massive seizure. And of course we called the ambulances, the fire trucks, you know, everything. They were there immediately. And I still remember them carrying this little boy they never even put him on a stretcher. They just scooped him up off the couch by that point in time and carried him to the ambulance and whisked him away. We of course, at this point in time, you don't really know what's happening as a parent. You just know something's wrong. I still remember looking across the room where it turned out to be our family room. And my oldest and my youngest son was sitting there. And I remember seeing my older son just rocking my young son, right? And I just remember thinking, how am I going to connect all these dots later? How am I going to get these kids through this, let alone myself? So fast forward, we get to the hospital. They tell us that clearly he's had a seizure. It's probably nothing. They do all the tests, they do all these kinds of things. A few hours later... A neurologist comes back and says, Mr. Link, we think your son's had a stroke. We see things there on the scans that we don't like, et cetera, et cetera. So he's in intensive care at this point in time. Every light is beeping and flashing. That was in the late morning, early afternoon. About 12 hours later in the ICU, he awakened, which I was just happy for because they had told us to prepare for deficiencies and other things. He looked at me and said, where are we? It looks like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. And at that point in time, I think I knew that things were going to be okay. Although there was much more to this journey. I, what, that turned out to be a brain tumor that we were dealing with. And when they first told me that, I thought the floor beneath me had collapsed and that I was falling into an abyss. I literally had to step out of the room and collect myself during that time period. What I learned as a leader from that experience, I had to dig deep into my soul in order to figure out how I wanted to think about this and what I needed to do. My first obvious response of it was to take good care of my child and my family 
my wife and our extended family. At that point in time, though, I couldn't bear the thought of somebody feeling sorry for us or for me. And so I kept almost all of this to myself, except to my closest of friends, certainly didn't share any of this at work that we were experiencing. That turned out to be a mistake. And why did it turn out to be a mistake? Because I needed that compassion as an employee and as a human being more so than I ever recognized or knew. And I needed that compassion from others in order to be an effective leader when I needed to show compassion in the future for them. And somehow I had missed that. And I think that came out as part of that suppression, right? Where you needed to suppress those things. And I learned from that. And I learned the quick reestablishment of compassion and empathetic skill and capability is what's really required to be the absolute best leader you can be. You can still lead without those things, but you're better. You're more capable and you get better outcomes for yourself and for your employees and for your business when you lead with empathy and compassion. And that's where I've spent the last several years thinking about it. I'd just like to tell you the rest of that story, Andrea. That boy is getting married in June. That's wonderful. How old was he when this happened? Kindergarten is when it started. And because we were unsure, I took that kid all over the country trying to figure out what was going on with him. They first thought it was basically a malformation of the brain, something called cortical dysplasia. The neurologists and neurosurgeons had told us that if this thing develops a cystic center, then it is a tumor and it will need to be removed. A little over a year into watching that very, very closely, that did indeed happen. And so the tumor was removed. And the good news is, like I said, he recovered well. We actually waited for a machine to be installed at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, which is where we were living at the time called an interoperative MRI. He was the very first patient to have an interoperative MRI occur while that he was under sedation and on the table. And it's a good thing they did because they actually left a small portion about the size of my fingernail of that tumor that they thought they had gotten. So by waiting and ensuring that we had a complete resection of the tumor, we knew that we had enabled the likelihood that he would be a long-lived, happy human. Wow. So that was a two-year journey for you. And you didn't share that at work. And you recognize now the impact of that. Because of that experience, you have a lot more empathy and compassion when people are going through stuff. Oh, no doubt. Because I have walked in their shoes. And when somebody says, you know, I've got a sick kid or a sick parent or a sick whatever, my first response is, by all means, why are you standing here talking to me? Get out of here. Go do what you need to do. And we'll figure out the rest, right? If you have a great team, then we'll figure out how to cover those gaps that employee's absence creates. Actually, what happens is the rallying effort that occurs also builds camaraderie and collaboration and cooperation. If you have that culture of collaboration, by the way, is important as well. And if you have that, again, as one of your bases, then you get to really build upon that and show that you can accomplish great things and your teams can accomplish great things whenever you work collectively together. Well, and the other thing that I'm struck by in this story is how important the environment is. Because you were talking earlier about creating environments where people feel comfortable being empathic versus leadership by the book or management by the book. You are attributing your not sharing, you said, to your own feelings of not wanting people to feel sorry for you. But I also suspect it was environmental as well. Maybe you didn't know how it would be received or we are most likely to be vulnerable when there is an environment that encourages vulnerability. I, at that time, believed that to struggle alone was better than to struggle in mass. I've since changed my mind on that through that circumstance, right? That we're talking about with my son, 
but with other things I've observed and witnessed as well. Even as a society, Andrea, when you think about what happened with the pandemic, that was probably the first time, certainly in modern history, that we struggled in mass. And we learned that we got through that better together. Yeah, isolation, never a good strategy for anyone. No, and we know what that leads to, right? I mean, the things we're not talking about, which is a whole other podcast that we can do, is about the after effects of what happens in that isolationism around the growing mental health crisis in this country. Our own research, Andrea, shows that more than a third of people report having a worse status of their mental health, you know, in 2021 or 22 than they did prior to the pandemic. And those numbers haven't substantially improved since then. And we also know, Andrea, that if you are a woman or if you're a person of color or if you're young, those statistics are even worse. I think we as a society now and as a culture, and particularly in the business world, have responded to that in the right ways. We have certainly opened the doors to transparency, to genuineness, to authenticity. We're having leaders tell their stories about what has shaped and molded them. And at times when they were at their absolute lowest, similar to what I just described for you, right? When I was at my absolute lowest point in my life, those things either cripple you or they give you strength. And at any moment in time, at least when I was going through mine, I did not know which it was. I did not know if it would cripple me, if it would give me strength. And it instantaneously gave me strength whenever I started talking about it. Well, and created connection with others because no doubt there's a lot of people on the other end of your story saying, oh my gosh, me too. I can relate to those feelings. So thank you for sharing your story. You said earlier that how important it is for leaders to tell their stories, that they shine through their stories. And you're sharing your story certainly models that. So thank you, Jim. Oh, thank you. Happy to do that. Let's talk a little bit more about empathy. As you said earlier, leadership by the book versus empathy. And I'm looking forward to a day when leadership by the book is demonstrating empathy and compassion. And I think we are rewriting the playbook for effective leadership through all of the things that you've been talking about. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about what gets in our way. And one thing that I still hear from a lot of leaders is the need to protect their organizations, the need to be compliant with policy. And I always challenge that because I so believe that those things aren't mutually exclusive. By showing up with compassion and empathy, we are protecting our organizations in the best way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They are not mutually exclusive. And the research continues to show again and again and again that empathetic leaders who can actually demonstrate empathy in the workplace generate better results than their non-empathetic colleagues. It's just a fact. And it's tied to engagement, it's tied to productivity, it's tied to customer satisfaction, it's tied to shareholder return. Every possible positive business measure that you could find out there has been proven in one way or another, and usually in more than one research study, to have a positive correlation, if not causation, for success tied to empathy. So it is becoming the structure of how we lead going forward. And the best thing about all this is it is absolutely the right thing to do. And someone asked me one time if I could think of one word to describe human resources, kind of the theme of the year for the next year or two, what would that be? And the word I gave them was personalization. Because every time that we treat one of our employees, one of our colleagues, a person that we know in such a way to demonstrate empathy and compassion we lift ourselves and we lift them. 
And that's what produces a better community result, a better business result, a better societal result. And we just got to get folks on board that train with us. And it's happening. I see it. Now we talk about more and more. We're actually teaching empathy and emotional intelligence as a requirement now in leadership courses. And you can assess for emotional intelligence. It's been a bumpy road. And I had to have a couple of really hard life lessons and realizations, some of which I've described on this podcast today, to get there myself. Isn't that the thing, that you are reclaiming it? And I absolutely believe we are born to show empathy and compassion. We are relational creatures. I think that is what we are here for, is to connect and to lift up and encourage and inspire. Of course, we would be equipped to show empathy. So maybe it's less about teaching empathy and more about helping people get back to who they already are. Yeah. Whenever I describe little things that make huge empathy differences in people. There are toolkits out there. If this isn't your natural thing, the good news is in many cases, particularly empathetic behavior, active listening and other things that are tied to emotional intelligence can be measured. And if they can be measured, they can be taught. So we do know that there are skills and practices that you can adopt as a leader. Something as simple as memorizing one important fact about each person who works for you and then coming back to that fact. It could be the name of a dog, how many cats you have in your house, your children, what sports those kids play, anything, right? Any little factoid to regain connectivity builds on conversation, conversation builds community, and community builds the society and the cultures that we want. So it starts with those little tiny steps that produces big outcomes at the end of the day. So reclaiming empathy, even if it's natural because of the suppression, there are things we can do. There are practices that can help us build those skills. And it's a simple thing. I really appreciate you highlighting that, just paying attention to the things that are important to people. I have a colleague whose husband was a part of a reduction yesterday. So I woke up this morning thinking about her and she was like, oh my gosh, you have such a crazy week. Like, don't worry about us. And I'm thinking okay, this is the most important person in your life. So he's important to me, right? Yeah, it does go a long way. And you were engaged right then in active listening with that person, which is a key component of effective emotional intelligence in a human being. And active listening means just that, eye contact, being engaged in that conversation, not checking your phone, where the only thing that matters at that moment in time are the words and the thoughts and the relations coming from that person, right? That's the key to active listening, and nothing else matters in the universe. There's nothing more empowering than that. Yeah, and we can feel it. You can't fake your way through that, right? Well, so last question for you, because you are the head of HR for the Professional Association for HR Leaders. I'm just curious to get your perspective on the future of our profession. I love what I see coming out of SHRM in ways I haven't previously We're talking empathy today. Just yesterday, I saw a video of Johnny Taylor talking about empathy, the CEO of SHRM. So what are you talking about where our profession's going? And even the branding around HR as a people culture function, is this going to be the society for people profession at some point, do you think? I don't know. What's some of your thoughts? You know, at SHRM, we believe that we really are influencing three kind of heads of state, if you will. And those three heads of state are chief human resources officers, chief executive officers, 
and politicos. So said in our language, it's CHROs, CEOs, and politicos. And that means that we're not just shaping the world of work, we're actually also shaping how people think about work, even at the governmental levels. For us, it's policy, not politics. We absolutely don't subscribe to either end of the political spectrum. Instead, what we try to do is subscribe to best policy out there for workers, the workplace, and the world of work in general. Now, when you think about how to do that, I think of this very much as three pillars. If it's easy for you to visualize, it's like a three-legged stool. And so there are three things that we here at the Society for Human Resource Management are thinking about as it relates to the future. One leg of that stool is clearly talent. The world of talent is in a place it's never been before. There's still more than two jobs open for every unemployed person in the country. And that those numbers are similar around the world, by the way. We have a massive skill gap in the country and we don't really have a great solution set. So that talent leg of the stool is vitally important and one that we have to get our arms around very quickly. The second leg of the stool is leadership. We've talked about that for the last 40 minutes. Absolutely leadership is tied very closely to the talent leg of the stool. And if you don't have effective leadership, you're in trouble from the get-go as we've just talked about. And the third leg of that stool is technology. We are in a world today where there's so much human capability that can be enhanced with a proper use of technology in the workplace that when you put those three together, talent, tech, and leadership, that is the recipe for the future of where business will be. And if we get those three things right, we continue to lead with empathy, we create our leadership models, we have the tech in place to enable that capability, and we select, source, and retain the right people, in our organizations, that's part of a winning recipe, no doubt. No doubt. Well, thank you, Jim. I appreciate you. I appreciate your insight. Thanks for being so open with us and sharing your story. And thank you for your leadership for our profession and for all the people that you serve. Thank you, Andrew. It's my pleasure to be here today. Looking forward to the next time. Absolutely. If our listeners want to connect with you, no doubt they will. Where can they find you? I am readily available on LinkedIn. Please do follow me. I'd love to share things that are knowledge-based, but also inspirational about the future of work. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss a Being at Work story.